Have you heard? 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 Welcome to Have You Heard. I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. And Jack, I hope you're enjoying your vacation. It's not a vacation, Jennifer. It's a working from a different location. Well, from what it sounds like on my end, you're working in a remote location that's deep underground. Are you in a sensory deprivation tank? I am. Uh, I brought my laptop into the the saline solution with me because uh, I find that podcasting has been very stressful for me. So this is a way to you know ease some of the burden. We'll all be easing some of the burden this episode by bringing in a whole bunch of people who are not you to really lead the way. <laughs> Nobody asked for that, by the way. I mean, that's 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 great, but I just I don't want our listeners to be uh, confused into thinking that there's been outcry for uh, the less, ouster of the co-host. Less Jack. <laughs> <laughs> well, this episode was inspired by a gap, and that would be the gap between the way policymakers talk about learning loss. And Jack, just to see if you're on your toes, what is learning loss? <laughs> As those who use the phrase mean it. Uh, it refers to a decline in the projected acquisition of academic content, knowledge, and skill, right? So you could imagine a graph with a slope, uh, you know, tilting upwards towards content mastery, uh, and that slope would not be quite as steep this year because of setbacks due to the pandemic. The difference between those two slopes would be the learning, quote unquote, lost, even despite the fact that you know students won't exit schooling after this pandemic, knowing less than they did prior to it. It's referring to the difference between what they would have been projected to have learned as measured by standardized tests and what they actually will have learned. Well, Jack, I'm imagining this is going to come as a huge surprise to you. but You fell asleep. Well, not just that, but I think that a lot of students who've experienced a year of pandemic learning, much of it remote, would have a really hard time recognizing their own experiences in that tortured explanation that you just provided of what they've lost. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's just be clear that I was only articulating on behalf of those who are obsessed with this phrase what its meaning would be. Uh, I find it sort of insufferable, and I'm really looking forward to hearing the students talk about it. I recently read a great piece in Edweek by Boston Middle School teacher Nima Avagia. It was about how the learning loss that policymakers keep talking about seems very distant from the way her students talk about what they've lost during this pandemic year. Well, fortunately for us, I happen to know Nima. We've had her on the show before, and so I invited her to come on to Have You Heard and elaborate and to bring a bunch of her students with her. And as Nima explains, her impetus for really tuning in to what her students have to say began last summer when almost overnight she went from being a very confident social studies teacher to one who was suddenly struggling to connect. 
the spring was a pretty royal failure for me as a teacher. I went from being fairly effective in person to largely ineffective online. And that's because I'd never done it before. Like I think all of us, we didn't really get any training. It was just like, here, go teach your class, but now it's on Zoom. And that really didn't work. And the result of which was like engagement was really weak. So I started in the spring basically by running um, circles with my students just to listen to them, to try to think about good questions that I could ask them and recognize that like they had a lot more to teach me than I had to teach them in this moment because um, I might know a lot about teaching in person in school, but I know nothing about what it's like to be a student during a pandemic doing remote learning. And so the best thing I could do as a teacher was to shut up and give them time to talk and to use what they were saying to shape my practice. Nima encouraged her students to share what they were going through and what they've lost during the past year. And as they told her, they've lost a lot. What was coming out to me really clearly when I was listening to young people is that learning loss was very low on their list of losses. The kinds of losses that young people were talking about range from losing family members to losing their housing, losing relationships with peers, losing connection to activities that they love doing, sports, arts, and ultimately, like probably the most sort of gutting one was kids literally saying, I've lost who I am. I've lost my sense of self which makes sense to me as a person who works with adolescents. Like so much of adolescent identity is social identity. They are who they are because of who they're with and because of what they're doing. And in the last year, they've lost all of the people they were with and they've lost all of the things that they were doing. And so I had young people saying like, I don't actually know who I am anymore. I've lost that. Now we're going to meet some of those students. First, just a note on audio quality. We usually go to great lengths to try to make this show sound as good as it can, but unequal access to technology is a part of this story. So I'm going to let you hear the students as I heard them. Oh, hi. My name is Mohammed, and I go to the John D. O'Brien. And I would say some that have lost uh, over the year of being home and online for school, I'd say mostly just like social interaction that people had before like being able to connect with either like a teacher or even a classmate, like in person saying, okay, so this is how someone responds to this and that, like just that social interaction that people I'd say look for in school, that it's like, if you're online, you can't really sense how somebody is or what their character is. So it's just harder overall. All right. Um, My name is Elu. I go to the children's school. I'm sixth grade. And I think that, um, since I just started sixth grade, I was looking forward to different things, for example, doing the basketball team or just having a little bit more of experience to see how walkers feel. And I think it's really, I think it's really different. And I think I've learned less than what I could have learned. I feel like I could have, I could have made more progress. And I could have, um, for example, had better days. I think I could have, you know, advanced a little bit more being in school instead of being, you know, at my house, at my desk, you know, and not just that, but the temptation that I'm right next to my bed. So the temptation that I can say, oh, I'm going to turn my camera off and I'm just going to lay on my bed for this period. It's like really hard to be like, oh my God, you have to stay focused, but when you're in school, you have no way to basically do that. So I've been really trying, but I feel I could have learned way more and made so much more progress than I Oh, hi, I'm Autumn, and I go to Snowden International, and uh, I feel like I lost my touch with my teachers. 
because like when I used to go to the toe, well, when I used to go to the Tobin, I had like a strong relationship with all my teachers, and like it's hard to like make a relationship with your teachers while you're at home in your virtual learning. So my name is Kia. I go to the McCormick, and people that I've had like that I've lost so far was someone within my family, they passed away from COVID. They caught the virus and it was sad because it was right before Christmas. You know, my aunt, she's very sad over it. She's still grieving from it because, you know, that was the love of her life. She doesn't live now. I don't even see my aunt like that no more because she moved away to get away, which is, you know, good for her. She needs to work on herself, but it does get sad when I see a lot of stress happening in my family. But other things that I've lost so far is also my friends and my like relationships that I've had before the pandemic. And a lot of them was good, but at the same time, it was bad because it's so hard coping with, you know, being alone constantly, not really having no one to talk to like I did before. It does get tough, but that's completely out of our control. We can't control the fact that we're in a pandemic and it's not like we can just go back and put ourselves in danger. We'll be hearing from lots more students, but I want to bring Nima Avashia back in. Nima, one of the themes that is already emerging is this loss of connection that students feel right now, a loss of connection with their teachers and with one another. It's something you've been thinking about a lot. Talk a little about how remote learning has made the relational aspect of school so much harder. All the sort of like really nuanced ways in which relationships get built don't happen and you end up with relationships that are very like didactic or transactional, but not relational. And I think that young people have really felt that in terms of their relationships with one another also, that having like an academic conversation without a relationship is very hard. It's very difficult to take those kinds of risks and put yourself out there if you don't feel like you can trust the person who you're talking to. And if you've never seen the person who you're talking to because people's internet is glitchy and they're not able to always have their cameras on and there's things going on around them. like So I haven't seen the person who I'm in a group with and I I maybe don't even know what their voice sounds like. I'm not going to feel known or seen by them and I'm probably not going to be able to have a very strong learning relationship with them. Like all of that is very much a product of the sort of like challenging situation that we're in and points to like the number one thing we need to be thinking about as we can back together in person is like, how are we building relationships? Now, part of what I'm hoping to accomplish with this episode is to give listeners a three-dimensional experience of what students are dealing with right now. And Nima says that that is exactly what's missing from the conversations and debates that so many adults are having, especially the adults with the power to make policy. There's just like so many layers that young people are navigating that I think aren't totally seen, like how many different kinds of hard something can be. And I do think like that is, you know, obviously part of the rationale around like the push to reopen has been, I think, some acknowledgement of those challenges. It just feels like the push to reopen isn't coupled with a push for increased support. And so it feels like the mentality is, well, if you just reopen schools, it's going to solve everything. And I just feel like, well, no. We didn't have enough mental health supports for kids in schools prior to the pandemic. We didn't have enough academic supports for kids in schools prior to pandemic. Like our schools have never been resourced in the way that they need to be to fully support kids. So to just say, well, you've experienced tremendous trauma. Our solution is just to reopen the school building and throw you in there with nothing additional. But we will give you some tests. It feels like it really is disconnected from the reality of what young people are experiencing. Um, my name is Trey and um, I'm from the Middle school. 
What I think I lost, to be honest, is like I've never played sports in like half a year now. Like my physical, like I realized it was like harder for me to breathe. Well, not really harder because I still exercise, but like it was more harder for me to get back into like what I was doing. And now I'm like more skinny. People are saying that I'm more skinny for some reason. I lost playing sports, lost hanging out with my friends and stuff. But I also gained a lot too. My grades improved by a thousand, plus another thousand, plus a trillion. So, yeah. Um, hi, Mamaya. I go to um, you know, I go to McCormick. Um, I don't think I've lost anything, but I feel like I've gained like a lot of stuff. Like in school, like I didn't have like the best grades, and I felt like that was from the people I was around. And the people I decided to hang around wasn't a really a good influence to like towards me. And you know, like it caused me to not be the like to not be the person I usually am. Cause you know, like growing up and stuff, like I've always gotten good grades. But you know, like once you like actually hit middle school and you like you start to meet, you know, like the the fake and phony people and stuff, and then you like it tries to like it starts to get to you a little bit. But you know, like now that you know, I'm home and stuff and I'm comfortable and I'm not, and I don't really have no type of distractions. You know, like my grades got better. Like I, I like, I do miss basketball and stuff. Cause you know, like that helped like, like a lot, but you know, me being home, like I'm comfortable and you know, like my, my grades, they're, they're, they're pretty okay. Um, I'm Armani and I go to Boston Arts Academy. Um, I guess for me, my loss and my gain correlate with each other. I lose, and with that loss, I gain. So I guess I lost my whole self because my personality was But I gained, like, so much more. I've gained more talent with screenwriting. I've gained a relationship with God. I guess I've just turned into a better version of myself. My name is DeLacy. Um, I go to Boston Latin Academy. Something that I lost was the feeling of happiness. Like when COVID first started, um, I was in a really bad spot. And on top of that, my mom was hospitalized. And, but now it's, it's okay. Like I got used to everything and kind of happy. Nima, one thing that really jumped out at me listening to these students from different Boston schools is that the stories that they're telling about remote learning are much more complicated than what I'm reading in, say, the Boston Globe. We can hear from their glitchy audio and the little siblings howling just off camera that this isn't an ideal way to learn, but I was really surprised by how many of them were able to point to something that they think is positive about the experience. Yeah, I mean, it's made me think a lot about the ways in which our schools are not always set up to support learning, right? So overstimulation is a huge thing for lots of kids. Our classes are really big. In Boston, we have high school classes that the max is 31, and in middle school, it's 28. That's a lot of stimulation. If you're somebody who struggles with stimulation, that is a lot of people and a lot of distraction to navigate. I think about going back into schools with 28 students after being home alone during a pandemic, and I can't even imagine what that level of stimulation is going to look like. 
So I think that has been an overwhelming thing that a lot of young people talk about, young people in particular who struggled in school with focus or struggled with getting distracted and struggled with then getting into trouble because they were distracted or unfocused. A lot of them have said, this has actually helped me because there isn't that external stimulus. Like I'm just able to focus on my learning. Nima says that this pause from schools has given students an opportunity to reflect on all the things they think are wrong with school. And they're asking the same question that's on a lot of our minds right now. What are schools for? Our school days start at a time that is developmentally wildly inappropriate. But remote school has allowed us to change that and to push it and to say, we don't have to make you get up at 5.30 in the morning to take two trains to get to your school in time for 7.10 breakfast. We don't have to do that. I think there's a way in which this moment has revealed to kids the ways in which our school system is really dehumanizing. Kids talked about being able to go to the bathroom when they want to instead of when they're told yes or no by an adult. They talked about being able to eat a snack. Like, why are we controlling them? Why are schools places where you can't eat when you're hungry? or why you can't go to the bathroom when you need to, or where we're telling you what clothes you can and can't wear. I just think that young people have realized during this moment, and I would say I as a teacher also have been thinking a lot about, like, why are our schools set up this way? What is it for? Um, hi, my name is Lianis, and I go to the Tobin. And something that I lost during COVID was motivated to do a lot of stuff. Um, before COVID hit, I was really happy and motivated to like friends house and like hang out um with people but now I'm just like I always want to be in my room and yeah and I've lost a lot of friends and those type of friends that I've lost they were always there for me until I realized that like there's true colors and when they left that just made me feel like way more alone but now I'm doing a lot better um than when it all started. Uh, hello, my name is Mohammed, and I go to the John D. O'Brien. And something that I would say that I've lost was honestly determination to just like go all out and above what I used to do, trying to exceed or get to the top as possible. Um, but something I'd say that I have um, gained, something that I do a lot is just reflecting on all the events that have happened before in my life and thinking, what am I going to do next? Because this is my first year of high school that I've started. Uh, so it's basically a new chapter, and I wonder, what am I going to do to either improve this or make it worse? I constantly go and think to myself, what are you doing right now? What are you? What's your next step? The summer is coming. Are you going to stay home? Are you going to travel? Constantly reflecting, thinking, how can this time that you have? Because I think of COVID as basically as a standstill, and think, okay, what could you do with this empty time? And what could you make of it? Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Kamani. I am a senior at Boston Land Academy. I have lost the patience for political officials to do what's right. That's what I've lost. I've lost the patience for political officials to not only do what's right, but to include students in the spaces when making decisions that impact students. I've lost the patience for them to do the right thing because it is clear that a lot of them, not all of them, are going to continue to play into this 
systemic sort of normative um, way of running the education system in a business capitalistic lens. And I think that's very disappointing and to say the least disgusting. I think what I've gained is a, uh, I've gained even more of a willingness and passion to mobilize students and really put myself out there and sacrifice a piece of my life and a piece of myself into public service. The last student you just heard, Kamani James, is well-known in Boston school circles. He served as the student representative on the Boston School Committee, and he recently resigned over what he says is a persistent pattern of the committee, the school system, and policymakers, all ignoring the voices of students. And he is not alone in feeling that way. Kids are asking for us to see them as full people and to build schools that hold their full selves. And that shouldn't be radical, but it unfortunately actually is because we haven't been doing that. We weren't doing that before the pandemic. When the commissioner says we're going to return to pre-pandemic schooling in September, like I want to quit teaching when I hear that because I don't want to go back to that. No educator or no child who has been in this moment thinks that going back to pre-pandemic schooling is a good idea. Pre-pandemic schooling wasn't working for too many young people. That's not something we should return to. We should be Marie Kondoing that thing, thanking it and saying goodbye, and moving into something new that is about being human and taking care of each other as human beings and knowing that like learning will happen if we start by taking care of young people. But if instead of taking care of them, our effort is to measure them and tell them that they are behind, I actually don't think learning will happen. I think that will be the most damaging thing we could do, and it will be the thing that actually does cause kids to disconnect and disengage from learning in the long run. The middle schoolers we've been hearing from are headed back into school just in time for spring testing season. Nima, you have been very critical of the state's priorities here. Break it down for us. I read a really great quote by Jesse Hagopian, who um, writes for Rethinking Schools, and he said, you know, if someone fell into the ocean in the Arctic, it would be like testing in this moment is like someone falls into the ocean and then you take them out and you put a thermometer in their mouth to check their temperature. When really what you need to do in that moment is like wrap them in blankets and give them something warm to drink and put them beside like a fire and try to warm them up. I think it's a great metaphor for what we're trying to do right now, which is we want to measure how much you've lost, but we're not thinking about, well, if we don't actually help you heal, can you come back from what you've lost? By now, you have heard from students all over Boston about what the last year has been like. Well, Nima had one more question for them. This is your chance to say what you actually think should happen and what you think the right things would be to do when we go back to school. We want to know from you, like, what is going to make you feel like reconnected to your friends? What is going to make you feel excited about being in school? What do you think are the things you need when you come back to school? Because adults are saying what you need is more academics. That's basically all they think you need is more academics. And so I guess the question is like, what would you want to see school doing when you come back in person? Um, I'm Armani and I go to Boston Arts Academy. When we go back to school, like the first thing that should be on everybody's list is healing. Like it wasn't no traumatic experience. Like we didn't have an exposed university that type of healing but the healing that 
you can't just go back to school and like everything's okay, happy unicorns and everything. Like it's obviously not okay. Like we obviously like a lot of us have lost things, like go in our lives, like what makes you think that we're gonna go back to school. I think academics now, I'm not gonna say academics should be on the last of the list, but it should be one of the last because if it's at the point where I'm being forced to go to school on summer, my attendance is being zero percent. And that's my complete honesty. So hi, my name is Kia and I'm from McCormick. And honestly, my opinion on that, it's very unnecessary. I don't, obviously us and what we're doing now, it like, if it's not helping us, how would adding more school to the time that we already have help? And I feel like a lot of adults, they don't, they don't have the solution to that. So they want to ignore the fact that we're in a pandemic and it's harder for us. What we need is we need friendships. We need healing. We need hobbies and we need more opportunities to stand out and do what and try to do what we was doing before, but like, and I agree with um, what someone else said, we need healing. We need teachers to reach out to us. We need counselors. We need more hobbies, more opportunities probably to be in sports and more classes that are probably going to talk about our backgrounds as people. You know, we need opportunities. I know there's a lot of seniors who probably had scholarships for sports, for an example, for an example, and they missed out on that because there's no sports during covid so what can schools and what can teachers and people who are put in the position of power do that's do that's going to like help benefit us students other than using academics? Because obviously the academic, the academics aren't working for us right now. My name is Alash Marie and I go to Tobin. I think it's completely insane how people, adults and teachers think that adding more school time during the summer, which is our break, adding more school time is okay for both our health and both our mental health. People right now during this pandemic are stressing and having anxiety and panic attacks now that we have like normal school. And adding more time to school is completely out of, you know, the ordinary. And it, I feel like, as a student who has anxiety and has panic attack, and if they told me that I had to go to summer school, I would be crazy. My name is DeLacy. Um, I was gonna say that I don't think it's a good idea to give, like to make us go to school in the summer. It's just a lot of people have a lot of plans, like they have summer jobs already. And it's just, it'll make things harder on everyone. I think a lot of people are going through a lot already. And I think people just need a break. People just need a break. Nima, we know what these students are not enthusiastic about. That would be mandatory summer school focused on closing their academic gaps. I'm giving you dictatorial powers, not unlike those exercised by our state commissioner of education. We heard multiple students tell us that they need us to help them heal. How do you make that happen? If I ruled the world, every kid this summer would have money to go to whatever camp they wanted to go to. Or if you wanted to go see your family and it was safe to do so, and what you wanted to do this summer was travel to see your family, I would pay for that. Or if you really wanted to like spend your summer like traveling to explore something, like I would pay for that. I actually think with all the garbage money that we're going to spend on like horrible acceleration academies, which make me want to poke my eyes out, we could actually create really enriching and healing and connecting opportunities for young people that position them to come back to school in September more 
ready to learn? What would it mean to like this summer after a year and four or five months of restriction to just say like, go do the things that are going to make you feel whole and we're going to support you in doing them. We're going to buy that plane ticket. We're going to send you to that camp. We're going to pay for that thing because the most important thing to us right now is that you feel whole because if you feel whole, you'll be able to learn. A huge thank you to Nima Avagia and to Laura Sinamo, who teaches at Boston's Tobin School, for making this happen. And most of all, thanks to the students who allowed me to crash their listening circle for this episode. And FYI, if you think that students deserve more of a say in the future of post-pandemic learning, good news, we've got another episode in the works featuring students from Lawrence, Massachusetts. And Jack and I will be right back to talk about what the push to reopen schools has to do with the push to test every kid. You won't want to miss it. So, Jack, since we talked to Nima and got to hear all of those students in Boston, a couple of things have happened. One is that we got an indication from our new Secretary of Education, Cardona, that there will be no waivers this year, right? Standardized testing is going ahead. And the other thing is that here in Massachusetts, um, the big news is that schools are reopening. Schools are reopening within the next couple of weeks. And, you know, a conspiratorial young lady such as myself can't help but think (laughs) that this real, like, all-hands-on deck push to get kids physically back into their schools has a lot to do with the desire of our sort of education policy infrastructure to get them, get those students testing. Uh, So I'm curious to get your take on that. But the other thing I'm really curious about is whether this is kind of a risky move for the testing establishment, that because we're looking at something that's going to be, you know, maybe the correct expression would be clown car or charade, (laughs) you know, do they risk kind of, uh, you know, do they risk the whole thing? Do they risk their whole theory of change about why it is that we subject kids to these tests in the first place? Well, this is the danger of us having done the show together for so long, Jennifer, is that you have uh, absorbed any of the commentary that I would offer and have embedded it in your question there, right? It's like you, you just... You did it all. Uh, so is it a coincidence that uh, leaders at the state level and the federal level are pushing so hard to get schools open before the end of the year in order to coincide with the mandatory tests that are going to be given this spring? I don't think so. Uh, you know, the entire policy apparatus that state and federal leaders have been relying on for the past two decades depends on those standardized test scores. And if you don't have those, suddenly the kind of centralized control that they have been able to exert for the past two decades becomes much more difficult to imagine. Now, there are all kinds of problems associated with that, but there are also problems associated with not being able to wield that control, right? With saying, yes, we are going to continue to direct 
major sources of revenue from the state and federal treasury to schools, but we're not really going to be able to uh, exert the same kind of influence with regard to what's happening inside schools and classrooms. And so I think that that theory of change, as you called it, and as made me so happy to hear you call it, um, is very much still in play here, where the theory of change is that if you measure what students are learning, and of course, you know, the degree to which that's actually being measured could be called into question here uh, via standardized tests, and then use various forms of, uh, you know, compulsion to get schools and teachers to do what you want them to do, then you will empower the state and the federal government in ways that they had not been for most of their histories. Well, Jack, last episode in the special area that we call In the Weeds that we do for our Patreon subscribers, you gave this incredibly passionate kind of rebuttal <laughs> of, of the whole push to test kids as soon as they get back to school. And you talked about your daughter. And it was amazing. I got so much feedback from people who were really moved by that. And after a while, I was like, enough already. It's just Jack. <laughs> yeah, although I can see what you've done here is that you have used your what seems like a compliment as a means of selling the Patreon to people. Well done there, Jennifer. Well, actually, Jack, that was coming down the pike in just a few minutes. But first, <laughs> someone wrote in with a question, and I didn't have the answer. The listener wanted to know, what does Jack think of opting out? And I, I was curious, what, what do you think of opting out? Is that something that you think people should consider right now? Yeah, I think that there are really two ways of thinking about it. One is that if a critical mass of people opt out, that it effectively invalidates the data. And that's one of the major concerns that I have about testing this spring is that we will see non-random and non-representative attrition in terms of student participation. So let me put that in English uh, for our listeners. Um, if you test everybody, then you know that the results represent that entire population. If you only test some students, then you want to make sure that those students represent the larger and more complete body that you are trying to assemble information about. And you can do that one of two ways. You can either assemble a representative sample, and that's what we do with the NAEP, the National Assessment of Educational Progress. Uh, or you can uh, assemble a random sample. Uh, and if it's large enough, it will be representative. But if, for instance, you see parents of color not sending their kids uh, to school for testing, um, more often than white parents not doing that. If you see lower income parents doing that, if you see higher income parents doing that, you know, whatever it is, uh, if people are not sending their kids in to be tested uh, on a non-random or non-representative basis, then the data don't reflect the larger population. You've effectively ruined the data set. And I think as a means of protest, that that's actually pretty effective. Um, a second way of looking at it is to take a race-conscious and class-conscious lens to it and to ask, you know, to what degree is the opt-out movement going to be a truly inclusive protest movement? Um, I think it varies from place to place, but there is definitely evidence that 
the opt-out efforts in some states or you know, some regions or some cities has been largely white and middle class. And that as a result, uh, you know, not only is it not necessarily representative in terms of the aims of the movement, but you know, the benefit of not having your kids sit for standardized tests would not accrue to everybody equally. Um, and so I would say that, you know, those who are considering opting out as a kind of social protest should be doing whatever, uh, you know, good activists do when they are engaging in protest. And that is trying to be as inclusive as possible, particularly with regard to people who are often marginalized. Well, Jack, I can imagine that after hearing you, people are probably really intrigued. They want to go back and they wanted to listen to that in the weeds to hear your impassioned crusade. <laughs> I know what you're doing, Jennifer. I'm not going to be a part of it. I'm muting myself while you do this. Well, as our regular listeners know, we support the podcast and pay our excellent producer through Patreon.com. If this interests you, all you have to do is go to Patreon.com slash Have You Heard Podcast and you'll see a list of all the cool extras you can get. We do a reading list that goes with every episode and you get to come to an all an exclusive area that we call in the weeds. And today we are going to talk about the return of integration, which is suddenly back on the policy table after a very lengthy absence. And Jack, I understand that you have some new research out. You know, you're trying to get me to just start talking about that. And then you're going to say like, well, if you want to hear more, come into the weeds. But I'm not going to take the bait there. I'm going to remind people that if they don't want to be in the exclusive space uh, that is created by the erection of a paywall, that they can uh, remain in the uh, public and uh, cost-free space that is the bulk of our show and that they can actually help support this democratic community by uh, sharing the show with their friends, by uh, offering us their feedback via the Twitter handle at Have You Heard Pod by sending us an email. Uh, the Have You Heard mailbag is always fun to go through. We've gotten lots of good ideas for shows uh, from some of our listeners. And uh, of course, there is a certain seamy underside to this enterprise, which is that, you know, star ratings do apply. So please go on and give us a rating wherever you download the podcast from. Make sure that you are subscribing so that you get the latest episodes. Uh, and if then, after all of that, you are still thirsty for more, then I suppose you can follow us into the weeds today. We'll talk a little bit about some research that my group just completed where we found that the benefits of integrated schools often accrue uh, most consistently to white students, which is not a part of the traditional narrative. I knew it. I knew I could get you to flog, <laughs> flog our, our for-profit venture if I just used your own research as a lure, proving once again, dear listeners, that I know Jack Schneider well. On that note, I'm Jennifer Berkshire. Yeah, and I'm a sucker. <laughs> this is Have You Heard. Have You Heard.